Welcome everyone to the Watchmen Podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial podcast for Watchmen on HBO. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Hello, everybody. The Watchmen Podcast by Fantastic Geek pulls off our masks for episode 103, She Was Killed by Space Junk. Pete, here we are diving in, of course, to episode 103. Can you believe that we have all watched one-third of this season of Watchmen and that in, oh, an hour and a half's time, we will accordingly be one-third through podcasting it? It really is something to behold, and this episode clearly the best of the bunch thus far. Well, Pete, certainly busy times ahead for us. Uh, In just next week alone, we will be talking... God friend me, Watchmen, The Mandalorian, first episode, a short trek, The Mandalorian, a second episode, um, and then, you know, repeat, rinse, etc. Uh, but next week, definitely some real fun in a lot of different geeky areas. Last year, Fantastic Geek set a uh, record in our uh, five plus years of existence with 159 podcasts we are uh this is 151 for 2019 we're gonna shatter that mark what with november and december this year but uh yeah we are uh we are especially fortunate to be talking about our first ever hbo show in watchmen and pete certainly will save the longer plea for later in the podcast but all that we have ahead of us. Indeed, Pete, between now and the end of the calendar year, only 35 things to podcast. <laughs> uh, and all of that made possible by everyone who supports us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. So that always appreciated. Indeed, could not do it without you. And now it's time to look under the hood of this episode. A telephone keypad beeps as a number is dialed inside a blue booth bearing the spherical emblem of one Dr. Manhattan. The true sat orbital array connects the call to Mars. A woman picks up the receiver and is told Dr. Manhattan is listening. This is not her first call, and she starts to tell a joke about a bricklayer over a montage of a taxi arriving in front of the familiar yet somehow different Washington Monument with a halo of sorts around it. She enters a bank as a man reads a headline from the D.C. Post Times that says Grisham to retire from Supreme Court. As the story of the bricklayer finishes up, or rather the joke, there's a brick left over. The guy freaks out. He had followed the blueprints to a T, but his daughter has an idea. She throws it high into the air, and the joke teller stammers. Oh, she messed it up. Okay, forget that joke. Can I tell you another one? Back to that intercut story being told in Washington, D.C., Uh, In a bank, indeed. Uh, It appears, Pete, that Agent Blake is holding up the joint. This is a robbery. Boom, boom, shooting into the ceiling and everything. Uh, Luckily, with a a Tim Burton-esque plume of smoke, a masked man is there to stop her. He's there to save everyone. Uh, But, of course, he got his tip from someone. Maybe it was the FBI. And this is when bank tellers and victims on the floor alike start to stand up and put on their FBI uh, ID. Uh, But this tip, which of course was to set a trap for the masked man, everyone in the bank is FBI. The masked man starts to run. Lori Blake guns him down in the back. Luckily he's wearing bulletproof armor. She uh, knew that was going to be bulletproof, right? She did not. And Mr. Shadow here uh, cuffed, An agent, like you said, asked uh, if she knew about the armor. Of course she did not. Uh, An onlooker behind a police barricade refers to Mr. Shadow as a hero. But Blake calls him a joke. She arrives home with a shoebox in front of the title card. She was killed by space junk in the foreground and Devo in the background 
Now, Pete, it's 2019, but in the Watchmen universe, so of course she's listening to Devo on her voice-activated CD player, uh, takes a mouse out of the shoebox and feeds it to an unseen thing in a cage. Uh, we'll learn in a couple of minutes that it's an owl. Pete, it's not some hideous beast. I was a little worried, but it, it's, not, it's just an owl, for goodness sake. Pete, she takes out a suitcase, puts in a code, looks like 666. Actually, Pete? 667. Uh, she opens that up and is bathed in a blue glow. Pete, clearly taking some visual cues. The episode is from good old QT, Quentin Tarantino. We don't see yet what's in there. Then, knock, knock. It's Senator Keene at the door. Uh, today, Laurie stopped Mr. Shadow. Last month was Revenger. No, the the. Hey, can uh, Senator Joe come in? Turns out he can, and he gets to meet who? Her owl. It's the owl's name. If you don't believe it, just ask the owl its name. Needs somebody to take care of him while she's out of town, because tomorrow the deputy director of the FBI is going to send her to Tulsa to lead an investigation um, because Senator Keene has asked him to. Um, the chief of police got hanged, not hung, Joe Jr. Uh, he knew Crawford a little, he says. He was a good man. His wife, of course, as we already know, uh, ran the Senate campaign. So this is all expository recap slash catch up for uh, Agent Blake. Uh, of course, folks assume the 7th Cavalry did it. But as Keene notes, and the first time we've heard this, they always take credit when they kill a cop, not a peep from them on this. Could it be a vigilante? We later find out that um, Blake is on the anti-vigilante uh, task force. Um, could be professional jealousy, as uh, Keene notes as well. They see cops as the enemy. Now they've got mask envy uh and blake chastises keen that uh maybe you shouldn't have put masks on him joe but he cites the statistic that crimes are down 80 percent in tulsa since the passage of dopa the defensive police act you named it dopa uh, ultimately, he wants things to bounce right. Uh, if he wants to be president one day, that, of course, Lori's observation there, but she very clearly painting this picture that he's not just pushing DOPA because he thinks it's the right thing to do. He wants DOPA in Tulsa to succeed because he has grander aspirations. Uh, indeed, if he does become president one day, he can pardon anyone he wants, even that owl in the cage, Pete. I read the graphic novel entitled <laughs> Watchmen. I don't think he's talking about who the owl. I think he's talking about the night owl, Dan Dryberg. Whom he's speaking of, of course. Um, but yeah, putting uh, putting Dopa potentially in Atlanta, in New Orleans, in Denver, throughout the country. So we've now finally got some answers police in other uh municipalities do not wear masks though they save lives but he's got a reputation matt his name's built on that idea you know like when his dad took masks off people um the cops have kept the peace for three years since the white night and if this isn't fixed he doesn't get to be president um so yeah and love the visual placing here of uh, Agent Blake in front of the Warhol-esque painting of Night Owl, Ozymandias, Dr. Manhattan, and then she is blocking herself, Silk Spectre 2, who we see after she says she regrets having to be sent to Epping, Oklahoma. It's interesting how this scene very clearly and effortlessly introduces those who need the introduction uh, to the fact that she is uh, a former costumed character and whatnot. It's funny. Obviously, I have the knowledge of having read the graphic novel and recently for the podcast. I've seen the movie. Uh, and then now I'm watching it with my wife, who I remember very distinctly. We saw the movie on opening night, and it was like 20 minutes in, and it was like, 
oh boy, I I did a bad thing by taking us to this movie. Um, <laughs> but she remembers it. Um, and I think you, there's a big blue reason why she probably. Remembers. <laughs> well, she, Pete, there was part of the movie that she liked a lot more than me. Let's just put it like that. You like what you like. Um, but she, you know, she immediately was like, "Oh, hey, is that that that's that lady?" She she's the older version of that lady from the movie, right? The lady in the yellow. And it was like, you know, this was on her radar as the episode first started, even before we get to this here. Uh, similarly, we will get a scene in a little while that also brings new audience members up to speed. So just interesting to see this the first of two times where they're telling you without telling you or they're telling you without saying, here's my file in the 1960s. Mom made me dress up and da, 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 da. Right. it's just kind of woven in. It's all set up, Matt, for the big cosmic joke. OK, forget the brick. As Blake goes into work, she begins to tell a new joke. Three heroes die and end up at the pearly gates. God gets to decide whether they go to heaven or hell. The first is a big owl, dressed as a big owl. Uh, He was given the gift by God to make fantastic inventions. And what did he do? Well, owl guy, as she refers to him, made really awesome, uh, a really awesome flying ship. Um, I'm sure God knows what they did in that really awesome flying ship by the way, at one point, um, lots he, of, cool he's always outfits. watching Pete. He's always like Santa. Okay. Lots of cool outfits and weapons. How many people did he kill? God asks zero. Okay. Sorry, owl guy, your heart's in the right place, but you're just, and I think owl guy had heard this before too soft. God snaps his fingers and sends the hero to hell. We, continue to the main body of the story here as Lori gets to that meeting at uh, FBI headquarters. Side note, Pete, I wonder, you know, in the alternate world, is it, you know, still called the Hoover building? I just, I, I wonder what happened to J. Edgar Hoover in this alternate, you know, world, but I digress. Seventh uh, Cavalry is identified as the clan with a different name. We get some backstory, the advantages given to African-Americans. We now have white folks pushing back. Uh, we even get an appearance, Pete, what I thought was going to be a fleeting, you know, like lost style. Hey, the guy who got gobbled into the uh, the the engine in the pilot. That's, you know, the, the author of the spinoff book that was a thing in season two to sell books. Uh, we get Dale Petey here um, who thinks there's more of a Rorschach connection. Uh, Pete, I think that that's actually the show's way of getting him on Laurie Blake's professional radar. Uh, the mission is all laid out, though, sending the FBI to Tulsa. All the suits are set to leave. Lori says no, though. She's going to go alone. Uh, however, she's really, really encouraged to not go alone. So she takes, mm, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, Dale Petey, who, handsome young man, also saw that Rorschach connection. Must be something with the name, Matt. <laughs> Cut oh. to a plane. Uh, of the United States, and they are descending. Uh, they have a bird's eye view of the Millennium Clock. If you look out your uh, y- your right side window here, um, Pete, I assume we're going to return to the Millennium Clock before the series is over. Um, oh. Petey talks about Vite. Hey, didn't she know Adrian Vite in the past? You know, in his Ozymandias days. Turns out Petey wrote his whole dissertation on her. Pete, his doctoral dissertation. It was on the police strike of 1977, as covered in the graphic novel. He has a PhD in history and great lion here. Uh, in fact, he says he had a PhD in history before running the projector for the FBI. What a compact sentence or two to have this past tense on a you know degree, of course, he still holds, and then in relation to his job as slide guy. Ultimately, he knows all about her and not as a fan. Yeah, don't treat him like one. And they get to the subject of Adrian Veidt. First time his name is spoken in Watchmen, the series. And uh, Blake, too, not a fan. Back we go to her phoned joke. She's talking about the dropping of a squid uh, by Smart Guy. How many people did Smarty Pants kill? Three million. After all, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. God snaps his fingers, and that hero goes to hell as well. 
outside a warehouse here uh, might not be the warehouse. Petey could be wrong. Love the affectation here of Blake spitting the seeds, hard-boiled indeed. Um, hey, is that what your PhD in history tells you, that this might be the wrong uh, warehouse? But the Tulsa paddy wagon uh, enters the scene. She gives her seeds over to Petey, but he's not allowed to eat them, and he has to wait there. Pirate Jenny has just gotten out of the driver's seat. Red Scare is in the back with a suspected 7th Cavalry member that he throws down. And uh, hey there, what are you guys up to? It is in this scene where the show went to another level because we accept the affectation of the masked police and all of that. Uh, and even we've seen how their world could be our world. It was just some changes in the past and so on and so forth. Uh, but police used to be normal until three years ago. Now they wear masks. And she saunters on in, deconstructing the concept of the show, making, you know, what's your name? Pirate Jenny. What's your name? Red Scare. Making it seem so ridiculous and so barely operable and i think that's where we're headed in the next scene in a moment uh first though she asks the perpetrator hey i'm with the fbi are you having your rights violated he starts to explain yes and then she says actually she doesn't care uh, she's here to see looking glass we then head inside the warehouse which looks more like pete my notes say a sketchy prison here's actually what i was thinking i was thinking of you know those terrible prison photos from occupied Iraq, you know, with yeah. pointy finger lady and things like that. This looks like a bunch of unified hooligans roughing up prisoners who may or may not be guilty of things, but it's, you know, it's the inmates running the asylum sort of feeling here and something clearly is wrong and this is not law enforcement the way it should be. It's noisy as she takes it in. There's a canine cop wearing an Anubis mask, which I thought was an excellent touch. There are lines of blindfolded suspects. They're taking DNA mouth swabs. And uh, PJ tells her that old LG is in the pod. Is he expecting her? She sure hopes not. Uh, she has the line, you know, hey, can I go next? I'm not, I'm not supposed to be next. Can I go next? Uh, ultimately, she hops into the pod, uh, gets a lengthy explanation of what it does in terms of uh, revealing secret biases. And she says, oh, it's a racist detector. Uh, Looking Glass doesn't care for that simple analogy. She keeps calling it a racist detector. Detector. She finds it kind of vaguely cool and talks to Wade, oh, she knows his name, about the chief's death. Uh, no need to have run a tox screen, huh? You know, since the obviousness of his having died at the end of the rope. Uh, and how did the location of the 7th Cavalry cattle farm get outed since it wasn't in the pod? There was <clears throat> secondary questioning with Sister Knight. And, of course, Looking Glass uh, was not witness to any uh, inappropriate questioning techniques. Not at all. Uh, would Sister Knight be Angela Abar? And there's just this delicious long pause. Yes, it would. Is she around? No, she's taken a personal day to work on her eulogy for the chief's funeral in a couple hours. Guess Blake better change into something darker back at the Black Freighter Inn and Suites. Side note, Pete, they did not get Tim Blake Nelson to wear a mask for this show. They got Tim Blake Nelson for moments like this where he's not wearing a mask. Yeah. Um, However, even with the mask on, I love how he appears to be, this is now multiple episodes, where he's wiping away tears or sweat or something like that. I don't know, is he meant to be sweating through? Is it is it Wade affecting character things here for other people to see? Whatever it is, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, but back to the narrative here. Uh, Lori's on the phone. Now she's talking about a blue man who won Vietnam and stopped giving a crap about humanity. Blue God talking to regular God. There you go. Gods and gods. Uh, he doesn't know the difference between live people and dead people. He's going to hell anyway. How does he know that? Because he's there already. 
Yeah, the line about the um, the same number of particles in a live body as a dead one directly from the comics. And, you know, what this episode does so well of introducing that older middle generation for for, you know, purposes of the full narrative of costumed adventurers. And, you know, we, we know Dr. Manhattan from the show, but to hear this background the same way we did before on Adrian Veidt, um and previously uh, Dan Dryberg, Night Owl, uh, really putting it in perspective and that she's doing this over the phone, the booth really like a confessional or uh, a pew to pray in for all intents and purposes to blue God, like some people uh, do. So of course, um, the former John Osterman here, he knows what's going to happen, that he's going to hell. But the sadness that uh, Laurie talks about him, you know, and the piston of God as time and space he's going to do what he does and what he's already done send him to hell agents blake and pt head to the funeral head to the graveyard they need to hand over their guns the obvious ones anyway uh during the dressing scene we saw laurie putting one on the old ankle and then is quick to hand over uh, the gun on her hip uh <laughs> pete that your your ticking time bomb or ticking gun waiting to be used in the next scene um at the would that be Chekhov's ankle gun Chekhov's ankle gun indeed um masked police officers walk the body to its gravesite uh Lori introduces herself quite directly to Angela and Cal right away she'd like to grab a coffee with Angela soon uh Lori hands her card over uh, she, of course, being part of that anti-vigilante task force, as you mentioned, Pete. You know how you can tell the difference between a masked cop and a vigilante? Lori Blake can't either. Some great background in this scene. The use of placards so far throughout the series. But this takes the cake. There are some winners there, Matt. There's one that reads, I have the right to remain angry. There's another that says, give us our guns back. Still another that says, if I can't see you, I can't trust you. And then the coup de grace, real heroes don't wear masks. The late chief gets a gun salute and the widow thanks everyone for honoring her husband. She calls up Angela and as Angela eulogizes uh, the late Judd, we see a Rorschach masked individual moving through a tunnel. We hear a ticking clock. Pete, that fast becoming code for something bad is going to happen uh it leads to a mausoleum and uh explosives are being unloaded into it it's a vest wait that's the vest that we saw at the end of last episode um and uh the man wearing it steps out into the crowd maybe not noticed right away but the way he kind of would be with people facing that way but you know pete if that's the biggest complaint in this show uh i'll take it the masked man closes the distance quickly and calls out Senator Joseph Keene Jr. as a race traitor. Keene is ready to go with him, but Lori Blake shoots the masked man dead. Uh, you would think, Pete, that's the end of the drama for the scene, but wait, uh, bleep, bloop, what's going on? Yes, that being the beep of the heart monitor that the uh, 7th Cavalry member called out. Uh, you know, don't shoot me because it'll go off. Um, some great detail to this entire scene set at Tartarus Acres, Matt. Tartarus being uh, from Greek mythology where the, uh, where the Titans, the gods, were imprisoned. Additionally, some really great shots of the 7th Cavalry member coming through the tunnel and then out from the mausoleum up to the angel on the, uh, the top of it. I mean, these are like comic panels in and of themselves. Uh, ultimately, uh, whether the vest is on countdown from his heart or just a, a timer, I know Lori uh, supposes it's the latter. Uh, Angela throws the, uh, the body of the seventh uh, cavalry member into the grave, then throws the casket over it. Uh, and runs, 
big explosion. Everyone's all right. Uh, so we get to relax there. Then we cut to what is undoubtedly the country estate. Uh, we're inside the castle. There's a mishmash of old technology uh, and just older things, including what looks to be an erector set, a catapult, things like that. The uh, still unnamed, but unnamed in this episode, or rather named in this episode, uh, Lord of the Country Estate is designing a metal suit. He's making things in his stately kitchen. Looks like boiling leather and leathering type things. <laughs> um, he's got paper going. He's sewing like the devil with one of those old timey foot uh, sewing machines. Uh, he cuts glass. He takes apart a suit of armor. All to fit Mr. Phillips up with a suit, and he's never doubted Phillips's trust in him. Yeah, so much detail here. The the bust with the purple mask, and we've had this slow three episode reveal of the now named Adrian Veidt a little later. Um, but the the blueprints, this suit of armor is he is he making an arc reactor, Matt? Uh, the glass from, uh, you know, the, the things that he's got, the vegetation that he then puts on uh, Phillips in addition to the rest of the, the night helmet and this air hose in the back. But this is going to be the one Phillips incapable of doubt, of course, uh, and ready to venture into the great beyond with a rope around his waist and he closes his eyes and then he is down. He is frozen. Um, it seems to now be morning. And uh, Adrian Vite is not happy. He's not, Pete. He says S and S and F and M and F. Uh, ultimately, I think we're going to need a thicker skin, Phillips 3.0. Uh, Pete, if indeed that is a reliable numbering system, I suspect that perhaps we're on a we're on a multi more than a multi-day plan <laughs> indeed um adrian veit soon to be named that rides his horse back past a pirate flag on a scythe pete that's probably a a, a dangerous combination there um he shoots a buffalo first shot right in the eye with a uh, bow and arrow however it appears he's not able to cross a hidden line there's a masked man on a horse uh that shakes his head no that's the man it's the man and not the horse that shakes his head no it appears pete that uh perhaps the lord of the country estate is on our island and there's a line that he can't cross yes uh but this shooter on the black horse later identified as the game warden frustrates him uh vite heads back to his estate he slams the door uh, Crookshanks and Phillips are there with yet another anniversary cake. This one now with three candles and they begin jolly good fellow, uh, as he smashes the cake out of his hands, out of their hands, I should say. Um, he's then meditating. Looks like he's floating like Dr. Manhattan. Uh, he's just sitting on the desk though. He's just sitting on the desk. Right. No theories about him having superpowers. He's just sitting. <laughs> Right. And and we can now I mean, they're clearly playing with us before we are formally told his name is Adrian Vite by him. Um, but Crookshanks uh, apologizes for disturbing him. She has a letter from the game warden, which he asks to uh, read to him. Uh, there is skull and crossbones impressed into the wax seal and uh, their adversary says for himself, he refers to uh, Vite as Sir and explains that when Vite first arrived there, wherever there is, they had agreed on the terms of his captivity, uh, something Matt had theorized uh, very, very early on. Uh, but his recent behavior now suggests an intention to violate the terms they agreed upon and uh, if it continues, there will be grave consequences, consequences, Matt, underscored. The next shot will not be at his feet. This will be his first and only warning. Thank you again for the delicious tomatoes, your humble servant, the game warden. By the way, Pete, underscore is British's for underline. I learned that this episode. To the typewriter, Crookshanks. 
Uh, he dictates a response letter. I beg your pardon, sir. I am no dastardly farce brigand, uh, and we can meet to discuss this further. No, if nor like. Republic serial villain. They were giving us the Vite reveal before we even knew it. The line right out of the comic. There you go. Uh, I, I'm glad you enjoyed the tomatoes. By the way, Pete, this is the first time I noticed that though Jeremy Irons is speaking with an accent, he's using kind of that uh, um, mid-Atlantic American quasi-British accent, but his tomatoes is far from tomatoes. And then it made me go back and realize this whole time it's been not a full British accent that's, that he's using, which is in line with the character. Uh, anyhow, he's off to hunt at midnight, signed Adrian Veidt. And then, Pete, we get to see him in the costume, which to my eyes looked pretty good. I know Damon Lindelof made a big deal to say, uh, notice how the costume doesn't fit him as well as it used to. Pete, if Adrian Veidt is listening, I just want to say you look fine in that costume, fella. And and it's the stern expression on his face that sells that, you know, the robes on the floor, but he's got the purple cowl and the gold and the mask. Um, but uh, a lot of a lot of mermaid man uh, or merman from SpongeBob memes with this one this week, uh, but but still makes it work. And uh, a crack of thunder and then bulbs popping as we transition back to Tulsa with Keen in front of the media here. He's not the hero, um, but the swift and fearless actions of law enforcement, they are. And then, Matt, um, we were all disappointed to see that Fox News exists in this alternate uh, 2019. So, Pete, there is the saying, at least historically, waving the bloody shirt, which is, uh, you know, well, Pete's defined as a ridicule uh, against used against opposing politicians uh, who made emotional calls to avenge the blood of northern soldiers who died in the Civil War. Here, similarly, uh, Keene literally in a bloody shirt as he verbally is waving the bloody shirt saying, no, no, not me. I'm doing this for the good people. And the Russians aren't my problem. The 7th Cavalry is. How nice, Pete, that we live in a world where there's both. Uh, Though the Russians may have uh, built their own intrinsic field generator, what's next, Mr. Moscow? But he wraps up his conversation, which again, in in view of the knowledge that he, he wanted to be president one day, uh, it certainly has a slightly different spin, different than his uh, selflessness. Thank you and God bless. Uh, PT is convinced, Pete, that's how we know we're in an alternate universe because their PT is not reflecting on all the details and just going for what's fed to him right away. Blake, <laughs> perhaps less uh, convinced, she takes her coffee and his and walks to the mausoleum. She stares down the hole in it and who pops back up out is Angela Abar with her night vision goggles. Yes. How about that coffee now? The hole goes just outside the fence awful lot with fences this week matt uh 300 meters long some kind of drill to do that fast um and i just love we, we know from the um uh the pdpedia this week uh that Lori blake was known as the comedian at one point having come to terms with her father's identity, both uh, realistically and uh, as a as a costumed adventurer. Um, and the sense of humor here that uh, they can't rule out extremist gophers. Uh, but we do have uh, Lori Blake's through line here. She had planned to dig up uh, Crawford's body to test it, to do that talk screen. Heck, she had a plan for tomorrow. Now, Judd's fallen on the grenade. Uh, the kind of vague uh, inference, the vague suggestion being that somehow Angela Abar has made it so that that test can't happen. Uh, Lori's found other things too. Tire tracks at the crime scene. Wheelchair tracks, indeed. Oh, and there was a secret compartment in Judd's closet. Lori always checks since her father died. What was in the closet, Angela? You'd know you're not the fainting type. Lori says that she found a big empty bust and uh, lots of accusations there without being an accusation. Well, a naked bust, something that 
you know, the um, the clan robe was draped from. Uh, so knows it must be some type of uh, garment. Um, but uh, maybe uh, he asked uh, Angela to get rid of whatever was on it. Maybe they were having an affair, which makes no sense because uh, Blake notes her husband is hot uh, foreshadowing for what's going to happen in just a little bit. But the line here that men who end up hanging from trees with secret compartments in their closets tend to think of themselves as good guys. And those who protect them think they're good guys, too. But Lori Blake eats good guys for breakfast. Uh, Pete, it was in this scene where it was it kind of harkened back to the um, the pirate Jenny scene earlier. I had never stopped to consider that this show was anything other than squarely with Angela Abar as the the lead character and here seeing Angela and Lori going toe to toe it's like oh my goodness this is a this is a duo this is you know and they're not even on the same side not that one is necessarily the villain but certainly they're in opposition in a way I had not anticipated uh Angela sneers at uh at Lori with false fear and then pours that coffee down the hole for an episode in which Regina King does not appear as much and Gene Smart just completely steps in and fills the void for them to share this scene. And can somebody, if it doesn't already exist, please make me a gif of um, Angela's false fear and then pouring down the coffee. Back to the motel we go. Intercut still with Lori's phone call. Uh, there's a woman, she's the little girl who threw the brick in the air and something falls towards God. The, uh, the brick hits God and kills him. God goes to hell. Pete, that's when Lori finally, uh, opens up that, uh, that suitcase there. We see first, uh, an old timey, uh, picture of her with Dr. Manhattan. And then we see Pete. It's an the... Esquire cover. Indeed. Silk uh, we... Spectre takes Manhattan. We also see her. Dr. Manhattan approximation. <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, extraordinarily exaggerated massager. Um, but either way, we, we've gotten the payoff from the blue glow in the case earlier. Um, but that's not enough as she assembles it from its foam receptacle uh, to put a smile on her face. And again, as the joke continues, was she given a talent by God? Nope. Uh, then there is a knock. It is actually Blake on the outside of Petey's room. Uh, we then cut to the Rorschach journal as it had been published with a watch on top of it. Outstanding shot. Uh, and God telling the woman that he's so sorry. He's so embarrassed and we're wondering as the transition happens to the boudoir and Petey is masked in bed. If there's been some sort of misfunction, um, seriously, this almost never happens, but God doesn't know who the woman is. Clearly Pete, we can, we can sense from the energy in the scene that agent PT has had, Dreams come true. Uh, he, of course, fast asleep while uh, Agent Blake seems to stare up at the ceiling. Maybe she she got what she knocked for, but maybe didn't get what she wanted. And the reveal that the woman is the little girl who threw the brick in the air in the first abandoned joke. There's a sound from above and the brick falls and hits God in the face his brain shoot out his nose. He goes to hell. Roll on snare drum. Curtains. Good joke. Right, Rorschach? Uh, with that, Lori in the phone booth, now presumably after the uh, the, the bedroom uh, meetup, uh, she is concluding her message to Dr. Manhattan. Good night, John. You'll never hear this anyway, will you? She walks out of the booth. There is a low rumbling. Then a car falls from the sky. Is it her car? Angela's car? Is it meant to be the brick? Uh, Lori does look up, sees presumably the red planet of Mars, and laughs at the sky to end the episode. 
let's open the crank file to dive into some crackpot theories. First one up here. What's the deal with people calling Dr. Manhattan? Is this like 1-800-PHONE-JESUS or something? I love that it's a network. Uh, obviously, there's a connection to true industries there, whether it's just the satellite uplink or whether they put the booths all over the place. But like I said in our recap there, not only is there a telecom connection, there's a spiritual overlay to this, whether it's purely confessional or there's some kind of prayer aspect behind it. This God can hear dispassionately their prayers uh, and that his former lover, one of his former lovers, we can assume the only one that's still alive, is leaving him these messages from multiple booths. I want to hit your question with a question, Matt. Who the hell is putting graffiti in these Dr. Manhattan phone booths? Like, you want to talk about blasphemy. <laughs> I mean, certainly it does. I think that it it humanizes the space in a way that, you know, one does not see graffiti inside a confessional or inside a, a, a purely religious institution. Um, and I think that that little bit of graffiti is suggestive that for some it is this, uh, this, this kind of spectacular space where you can commune with the godlike Manhattan. And for others, it's just a dumb idea or a place that you, you know, hang out in the rain or something like that. Um, Obviously, most of this episode taking place in Tulsa. Let's hop back to Washington, D.C. for a moment. What's the deal with the circle around the Washington Monument's apex? Is it meant to be a, a viewing platform or the same writer's room that took the joke of the uh, personal massager and ran with it as a story bit? Uh, could that also be a visual joke for what's going on with the uh, prominent Washington Monument? Matt, Fantastic Geek keeps it highbrow. Okay, no profanity. Uh, there's a certain symbolism to what's going on. Absolutely. Some, again, foreshadowing this on top of the fact that she gets out of a cab with the American hero story tagline, comedy begets tragedy. Moving on here, Pete, the PDpedia posts, if that's not enough alliteration for you, uh, they've talked about how Lori Uspezik, uh was, of course, a had a costume career after the squid attack, even taking the name The Comedian. Uh, she and Night Owl Dan Dryberg were caught in the 1990s. He's seemingly still in jail, both supported by this episode and the PDpedia stuff. What did Lori Blake do to go from on-the-run costume vigilante to pretty high up in not just law enforcement, but in the FBI, hobnobbing with senators, perhaps future presidents, et cetera. Well, she's got a skill set. We definitely know that. And also the connections with the identity of her uh, late father that she's come to grips with. And, you know, we can presume her late mother as well. I mean, she is the the child of two former costumed adventurers. We don't know anybody else in this world like that. So if anybody would be recruited by the FBI, I mean, come on, they recruited um, Dale Peaty because he had a PhD in history that he wrote a dissertation on the, the police strike of 77. Imagine how they would have salivated to get her on the payroll and do that. So she clearly cut a deal. Um, the overt uh, notion behind this episode with her joke that, you know, she is the one who is overlooked. We talk about these other men who have done all these things. One is a God for crying out loud, yet it's the woman, it's the woman, the, uh, behind the great men that really underscores this episode. And I absolutely love that. I wish there were less guns in the world. Tulsa PD would have zero guns at the funeral. Lori Blake's one gun made a big difference. What's the show saying here? 
I think, you know, you make the statement, we've got the placards, guns have been taken away, yet we've authorized guns for Tulsa PD on a limited basis. You know, we see Pyrogeny with the bright yellow uh, uh, shotgun that she's uh, moving suspects around with. I still feel like there's some kind of gun grab through the police that uh, Crawford may have been involved with. Um, But definitely a statement about our world and theirs. So Lori Blake, what's the thought process for her taking the last name of her father and for the uninitiated in the graphic novel, she didn't know that Eddie Blake was her father until she put the pieces together and realized that uh, her existence was due to the rape of her mother by Edward Blake. I think it denotes that she's been able to process all of this, that much like her mother, who we see at points in the graphic novel, reviles Edward Blake, the comedian, eventually comes to terms. Uh, you know, she, she loved him. They had this child together. Um, and she feels the pangs of nostalgia for him after his death. I mean, listen, it's, it's lionizing. Obviously he was not a good person. Um, I don't think that Lori in her heart of hearts feels she is a good person yet. You know, she makes this phone call that only we and Dr. Manhattan are, are privy to. And by the way, what, what happens to these phone calls. You know, it made me think a little bit. It's kind of like what, what people say into uh, digital assistance. It's got to go someplace, you know? So she's told this and thankfully it's under the guise of a joke, but she's revealed that the smartest man in the world dropped this giant squid on New York city. Somebody's, somebody's got to have that and be able to decrypt that someplace. I guess certainly time will tell. Uh, Also, hopefully time will tell where Vite ultimately is. Pete, what's the cold exterior outside his prison-like estate? He's definitely in space. He's got to be on Mars. He's trying to break out. I think the thing we have to decode now is, um, is he there of his own volition? You know, this discussion about accepting the terms of his um, incarceration versus being taken there. You know, has he... Has he both come up with the prison and the rules in an attempt to escape? He talks about how his pursuits are purely recreational. Um, Is the game warden another Phillips, but just wearing a mask? Or is there more going on there? Well, I think uh, great questions and plenty of potential for the six episodes ahead to dig deeper there. Pete, you had pointed out to me that uh, in this episode we see his uh, three-candled for He's a Jolly Good Fellow uh, anniversary celebration. Are we seeing some sort of, you know, the other 48 days time fast-forward kind of thing here where now he is three years, three cycles, three somethings deep, whereas it might otherwise look like, oh, it's a couple of days like everybody else. Right. And, you know, where in the timeline is this the space between 1985 and 2019 that we're seeing? Uh, We know that he's been missing since 2012, right? Before he was declared. Yeah, 2011, 2012, somewhere there. Before he was declared dead. Um, The line by Petey, quoting, of course, uh, Shelley's poem uh, and then you know, a shout out to Adrian Veidt, look on uh, my works, he mighty and despair as he sees the millennium clock that Lady True has built. Lady True, uh, True Industries having purchased all of Veidt's holding and then instrumental in helping to declare him dead. She said that at the groundbreaking for the millennium clock. Is she some kind of disciple of Adrian Veidt, or is this purely a, a monetary thing? We've not met her yet. Um, I'm going to have to wait till next episode there. Is Senator Keene our central villain? Did he plan the attack? Is he willing to don any mask behind the scenes to become president? I mean, there's a complete uh, imitation here of the assassination attempt on Adrian Veidt 
from the graphic novel. I mean, if only there was a, a, a pyramid logo on uh, somebody there to point the way, Matt, it really, really feels on the nose, but it, it's supposed to. Remember, this is not a reboot. This is not a reimagining what Damon Lindelof has referred to as a remix. And I think this episode, the greatest example of it thus far. Although he did also say on Instagram this week, uh, okay, maybe it is kind of a sequel. So walking that back, because this show was just clearly a sequel to the graphic novel. Can it have similar rhythms or callbacks? Yes. But that, you know, I think of 18 months ago or whatever, where it was like, it's not this, it's not that. And it's like, well, how can it be none of those things? It's a, it's a sequel, and that's okay. <laughs> Pete, the girl who threw the brick, is that story a warning that Lori will somehow defeat Dr. Manhattan before the season is over? I don't think she'll defeat him, but she's clearly a destabilizing force. And again, that that reckoning with which to be careful. I mean, right now we've cast Angela and Lori as adversaries, but I think ultimately the, the, you know, biggest adversaries usually wind up at some point working together. And I think both law enforcement, it's way too easy to think that they're framing Angela for Crawford. But of course, you know, where's the missing clan uh, costume? She's got her fingerprints on it now. That was not really a, a great idea to take it with her bare hands and to put her fingerprints on it. So they're going to have cause there. Is Angela in the clan, the Seventh Cavalry? I mean, you know, we're, we're definitely not going to go down that road, but she was close with Crawford and whatever Crawford might be implicated in, she's covering up for the knowledge of him doing the cocaine, um, the talk screen, the rest of the force, at least looking glass, uh, who's in some position to, uh, to know about this denying it. Um, and now the chief's body has been blown up a rather convenient way. Something that even if the assassination attempt was scripted so that Keen would be abducted, Instead, the wild card was Blake, ironically, the wild card that Keene introduced and wanted in Tulsa. Um, so it's a best laid plans of mice and men type of situation, yet it may have even worked out better than uh, Joe Jr. would have hoped for. Last bit from me, kind of a potpourri or P.T. Puri uh, moment here as we look over some of the things from PDpedia. Um there's a memo from Agent Petey that uh, he says that he thinks Laurie doesn't read his memos. That poor boy. But it has the line, uh, I have suffered through two episodes of this dreck. I'm not looking forward to the third, but I will watch. <laughs> Pete, that is surely some self-finger wagging for the show in a, in a, you know, a sarcastic sense, right? Right. But American hero story and, and all of that. I just love... Where the show is on the nose, it's appropriate. And where it's delicate with metaphor, it's really, really smart. Okay? So all this stuff with fences in this episode and boundaries that shouldn't be crossed, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we see Lori outside of Crawford's home. We see her cross the fence and the barrier into the cemetery. We see her uh, at the fence of the mausoleum, the tunnel under the mausoleum. Okay, boy, that's not a metaphor at all. And then when you consider where Vite is and that there are places he's not allowed to go, fences, walls, who knew? Uh, last couple bits from PDpedia. Uh, there's a letter from David Keene, the father. Uh, who gave last week's painting to Judd's father or grandfather in the 1950s, this being a case of the painting being revealed to be a copy by the original artist. Um, not quite sure what to make of it beyond our discussion of the painting and its title and whatnot last week. Um, but I'll add, truly lastly, that uh, the third bit is a clipping from the New Frontiersman, uh, apoplectic over you know, just kind of in its right wing rage and ultimately calling um, for uh, whites to move to Mars. 
So Pete, just to connect all the dots here, this letter written in June 1955, J. David Keene, of course, Senator Joe's uh, of the show, his father, presumably also the same uh, Joseph David Keene, who's behind the Keene Act in the 70s, leading to the police uh, riots and the, uh, uh, you know, preventing masked heroes, etc., right? Unless there's a third generation that we're unaware of the use of David we've not seen that from the graphic novel so I wonder how much they're trying to fudge that in the supplementary materials on the website this week what theories and questions and uh, thought-provoking things do you have Pete so very interestingly and it's Probably a flub, but the jet that brings um, Blake and Petey to Tulsa has the old style American flag on it, not the new circular stars on it. Um, and listen, what, are they are they going to do a digital effect on a on a Learjet that's in uh, one shot? They're not. But I thought it was very interesting that it appeared that way. Um, I mean, they could. They could do a digital effect. I don't. I don't know much about effects. I can't imagine. Let me put this way: I'm not sure that that Learjet didn't already have effects or was not an effect by itself. But who knows, Pete? Maybe you've uncovered the the flag key through which everything will be will be <laughs> understandable by the end of the ninth episode. The Devo song comes from an album called Space Junk. Uh I know that. Uh, PeteSlate.com had an article that got uh, more into the title of the episode as well as uh, the the device which Lori has. Um, it was interesting to see how they took the title. They took the device, which was originally a joke, not joke, joke, um, and kind of put it all together. If nothing else, it shows that they're focused on getting some levity into a show that has really complex issues. I think even separate from the fact that you know, the device gives us insight into Lori's wants, both physical and emotional and things like that. Speaking of devices, Matt, in the background of the Black Freighter in its suites, there are three of those big uh, devices, presumably, again, squid alert sirens or whatnot. Um, you know, the thing I wanted in this episode, we get just a glimpse of it in the pod, the, the slide stops on the, uh, on the squid, um, no further squid stuff. I mean, we're told that uh, smarty pants dropped a giant squid and killed 3 million people, which again, graphic novel readers know other, uh, members of the audience just hearing that for the first time. I feel like the notion of the squid conspiracy, uh, it's too good a thread to not resolve to some degree. And if the show ultimately wants to resolve it in the background with a, a PDPedia document from, you know, the president Redford or whatever it might be. Um, I feel like it's one of those things that's there for hardcore fans to salivate over. If you're watching a bit more casually, it's like, it's one of those things that's like, oh, is it fake news or isn't it? They're not really sure. It just adds to the environment of it all. Last one for me, and I think it's an important one. Phillips is uh, said by Vite to be incapable of doubt. Um, that implies to me that Vite was involved in his creation as opposed to receiving him and knowing what he's capable of and what he's not capable of kind of like the line previously there's so many things i would like to occur to you i think that if this is Vite's prison i certainly sense that that uh that his caretakers his guards if you will in the prison are are not of his doing uh certainly could be wrong but i sense that maybe it's more with that frustration of Oh man, my only friends are dumb robots, um, and and they can't help me get out. Uh, more than oh, I didn't make this. I didn't make this little wooden boy as human as I could. I'm picking up some psychic transmissions from our audience. 
Pete, we ran two Twitter polls this week. The first one, general review of the episode. Uh, one star, one mask got 7%. Two, scar, two stars, Game Warden Note got 3%. Uh, three stars, suitcase help. Uh, was 10%, and then uh, four stars, good joke, got 80% of the vote. Uh, some further thoughts from uh, Christopher McAvoy, that's Hoochie666 on Twitter. Uh, how great is this show so far? Can't get over it. I'm almost tempted to go back and watch the movie again. I need to catch up on your casts of the graphic novel. Thanks for your hard work, says Christopher. Really, really kind. Almost tempted to go back and watch the movie. <laughs> that's the best you can hope for uh there's a second poll uh where is and i did the blackout you know so i wouldn't spoil it for people uh where is vite the jeremy irons character on watchman um 48 said mars 29 said space not mars 10 said antarctica uh and then 14 said other reply below only one person replied though pete that was our pal jj nato who said the future um I don't know about the future i saw that um it's a bold prediction like i said i i think we're informing the time in between it's it's definitely not concurrent um i will say my pet theory is antarctica i kind of I, I like the notion that his prison ends up being the pleasure palace that he built his fortress of solitude which he himself had you know, had iced out a large degree. I just, I don't know, I like that symmetry, although it's probably a better story thing that somehow Dr. Manhattan is ultimately the jailer. Anyhow, Pete, to email we go. First one from our pal 084. Uh, he's reflecting on Watchmen 102 and 103 and says as follows. Not a lot of action from these last two episodes, but they more than make up for it with the superb dialogue and writing. Angela is one of the most compelling protagonists I've witnessed in TV this year, even in 103 with Lori taking the spotlight. The personal investigation she goes on is riveting, even if it still is unclear if Judd was truly an evil KKK member or if that evidence was indeed a little too conveniently placed. It doesn't seem he's definitely not Night Owl or Lori would have made more of a reaction to his photos. I do believe at this point that Will being hooded justice and the TV dramatization, assuming the wrong race, would make a lot of sense and be a great turn. Who are his friends in high places? Could it be the real Night Owl who extracted him with the giant magnet and dropped the car back at Lori's feet? No idea, but I'm really digging this mix of new, fresh characters and the previous generations from the novel. 103 was really the best episode so far, letting Lori sizzle with everyone she shared the screen with and deliver the great monologue to Dr. Manhattan all throughout. Really hoping to get more amazing scenes with her and Angela going forward. Until next time, 084. Couldn't agree anymore with everything that he had to say there. Uh, next up, Pete, an email from 7th Cavill Steve. Uh, he says, Dear Pete and Matt, writing to you guys this Sunday night from Jackpot, Nevada this week. It doesn't really live up to its name. I'll get right to the point. I know you boys tend not to talk politics, but this week the show had a big political point to make. I'm talking about that hog Lori keeps in a case. It's big, it's blue, and it's not getting the job done. Hello, it's a metaphor for all the dem libs out there. What a letdown. Nice to see a Hollywood show taking their own blue side to task. Pete, that's from 7th Cavill Steve. Wow. That is definitely one take. I don't think it's a correct take. Uh, but yeah, uh, way to leave me pretty much speechless with that email, <laughs> Seventh Cavill Steve. Certainly, Pete, if nothing else, it shows you can you can dig for metaphors in a rich story in all sorts of places. Speaking of places, Matt, we'll teleport to Apple Podcasts where uh, JKillen9, our friend from Twitter, Big Killen, has left a five-star review that reads, Another must-have companion. And it says, like all the fantastic podcasts, this is a must. M and P understand the source material and the relevance of this current reincarnation they always give you just enough inside scoop and social commentary to keep you guessing and thinking hbo should pay them for recapping the graphic novel well 
the kindness is what matters most uh the the appreciation from james there i'll also take money from hbo uh even though pete i know on another podcast i i was not high in the long-term health of uh at&t warner or whatever the company is called now pete i take it all back i'll take it all back for a big <laughs> wheelbarrow full of, of of money and 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 whatnot you know i'm i'm flexible we don't need that hbo money matt because of the people at patreon.com slash fantastic geek indeed pete they keep us independent they keep us listener supported they keep us so prepped as we get ready for this giant star wars trench run like uh race of 37 episodes between now uh, and january 4th that we're gonna that's be what's in on. our case indeed and pete i'm talking god friend to me i'm talking watchmen i'm talking mandalorian i'm talking star trek short treks uh, I'm talking Runaways, and uh, there's also apparently a Space War movie coming out shortly before Christmas. And All Star Trek Picard on the other side and the new year. Absolutely. Boldly going from this year to the next. And, you know, it really is so wonderful to know that we are listener-supported, particularly as those bandwidth and storage costs do accrue, particularly this time of year, time to pay the pod man on our end, and uh, a big thanks to all who support uh, if you are not in a situation where you can contribute, you can always go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review completely free and helps us just as much. Pete, what is one of the ways people can be in touch with you on Twitter to talk about Watchmen? You can find me at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R-10,784. -E -E Followers can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek. All one word with the P, with the H, like it today. Well, Pete, for those listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we have some Cloak and Dagger slash Runaways things to discuss in the coming days. Then, of course, looping back around to Godfriend and Me next Monday, uh, ahead of this awesome week that's ahead with we got DC, we got Marvel, we got Star Wars, we have all sorts of good things ahead of us, and uh, I just can't wait. But Pete, this podcast now over. We, of course, will be talking Watchmen again on next Watchmen Wednesday, but with that... I'm going to say adios to all the listeners and give you the final word. So can I get that autograph now or 